it's obviously an exaggeration to say that we are surprised to find ourselves today talking about a Trump presidency and Republican majorities in the House and Senate. No matter for whom we voted, I think we all have a sense that something very big just happened in our country. And occasions like this demand, it seems to me, that we re-examine our prior beliefs and prejudices so that we can better understand the society in which we live. But they also demand that we sustain and defend the fundamental values and principles that we cherish as individuals, as an institution here at Brookings, and indeed as a nation. This is the Brookings Cafeteria Podcast. I'm Fred Dews. The day after the presidential election, Brookings experts discuss the results and the road ahead for President-elect Trump in a public event held at Brookings. This episode presents that conversation, which included David Wessel moderating and who you heard leading off the show. You will also hear from Stuart Butler, John Hudak, Elaine Kmark, and Bruce Rydell. The panelists talked about a wide range of political and policy subjects, including economic mobility, what will happen to the Affordable Care Act, American foreign policy under a President Trump, and how President Trump might run his cabinet in the executive branch. And now back to David Wessel. This morning, Strove Talbot, the president of Brookings, sent a note to the staff in which he reaffirmed that we will, to quote from him, adhere to our core values, respect for facts, respect for rigorous analysis, respect for competing, competing views and civil discourse, protection of our independence, both scholarly and institutional, and remain focused on our mission of improving governance. Uh, to paraphrase Strobe a bit, we know today that many Americans are deeply dissatisfied with the way their company is go- country is governed, and that we know also that other democracies in other parts of the world are grappling with similar discontents that produced last night's result. And these are, have unsettling, sometimes even dangerous political and geopolitical reverberations. Now, there has already been a lot of instant analysis about this election on TV and on social media and in, on online commentary. And it's a tradition here at Brookings that we gather the day after the election to offer our, our preliminary uh, observations as well. I want to underscore the preliminary. Um, we're going to do that today, but I want to, us to keep a couple things in mind before I turn and introduce to the panel here. One, even on issues on which we intensely disagree, we believe in and practice respectful civil conversation and argument. Two, we should be very careful and humble today about predicting with certainty what follows Donald Trump's victory. Uh, I'm not even sure that Donald Trump knows what follows his victory. Uh, And third, especially in a think tank inside the Beltway, a 100-year-old think tank, an institution which is in some ways a very symbol of the elites that so many Trump voters resent, we need to avoid overgeneralizing and condescending to those Americans who voted for Donald Trump. J.D. Vance of Hillbilly Elegy has an op-ed in the New York Times today which points out that uh, to suggest that many Trump voters are worried about something real invites scorn from certain corners of the media, and he might add the think tank community, Many people can't stomach the fact that people are driven to Trump by anything besides racism. The decline felt in certain corners of the country is not just about economics, it's about every element of life, from family to life expectancy to the drugs that have infected their communities. The feeling that so many of America's opinion leaders see their concerns as the product of stupidity at best or racism at worst confirms the worst fears of the many. They already worry that the coastal elites don't care about them, and many of those elites seem happy to comply. We are going to try and avoid practicing that today. We recognize that we live in a very divided society, and we have a very diverse panel here to begin to speculate on what this means, how we got here, and what this means. Uh, On my immediate left is Elaine Kmark, who's in our government studies program, who has, among other things, worked in the Bill Clinton's administration and has been a longtime member of the Democratic National Committee. Stuart Butler, um, who I, uh, I, I want to make sure everybody understands, is despite his accent, is an American citizen and actually, <laughs> actually has a PhD in American economic history. So chances are he knows many more than many of us who grew up here. I'll be uh, allowed to stay. Stuart is a, uh, a colleague of mine in economic studies at Brookings, where he came to us a few years ago after 35 years at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Bruce Rydell, who is, uh, is it Rydell or Rydell? Rydell. Rydell, uh, retired in 2006 after 30 years of service with the CIA. Um, he, has, he was involved in, among other things, the 
Camp David Peace Process. He's now a senior fellow here in the, in, at Brookings and director of our intelligence project. And on, on the far left is John Hudak, who's in our uh, governance studies program, director of the, or deputy director of the Center for Effective Public Management. Is that what you run, Elaine? Yes, and you're the director, the founding yeah. director. <laughs> uh, um, uh, 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 John has written about many things, one of which we'll talk about when we get past the Trump thing is uh, a short history of how marijuana emerged from the shadows of the countercultural illegality become a mainstream public policy issue, which happened uh, it, indeed just yesterday. Stuart, if I might, I'd like to start with you. Um, uh, the popular vote is very, very close. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, the last time I saw it, Hillary Clinton was ahead a little bit. Um, but we know when you look at the exit polls that a lot of Donald Trump's support came from white working class Americans who feel, uh, as J.D. Vance points out, often with some justification, that somehow all the economic progress we've had uh, has left them out. Uh, a, uh, are they, do you think they're right? And B, more importantly, what kind of policies could we recommend to the president and the new Congress that might address their legitimate concerns? Well, we, as well as a lot of other research institutions, have looked a lot at uh, the whole issue of economic mobility in America. Uh, can people expect to move up if they work hard and so forth? And how, are their, how is their trajectory in life likely to compare uh, with their parents? And there's no question that you see, I think, among, particularly among uh, Trump uh, supporters, uh, white working class, uh, black lower income people as well, uh, a lot of others, a feeling that the deck is somehow stacked against them, that they are not going to be better off, and the data is very supportive of that, uh, and they're very pessimistic about the future. Uh, they also feel increasingly, I think, and you saw this very much in the election, that somehow um, there are obstacles that are being placed in front of them in some way, everything from sort of a cronyism of various kinds. Uh, there are people making out uh, very well in America, but not them, uh, immigration, uh, and so on. It doesn't have to be correct, uh, but there's absolutely a perception of that. And so I think when, when, you, when you look at this, and you do recognize that, that uh, we see um, a, a deindustrialization of much of America, particularly the smaller uh, industrial towns in the South, in the Midwest, where we saw such, such heavy vote uh, uh, for Trump. Uh, there is a realism uh, to that. So I think in terms of how one is going to try to, to deal with this, uh, I think a number of steps. First of all, I think for many of these people, getting government to work in an everyday basis is so important. These are people who feel that the VA has let them down, they can't get an appointment, uh, there's potholes in the road, all these kinds of things. So I think one element is uh, both Republicans and Democrats actually, and the White House, beginning to take some steps to actually bring some effectiveness and efficiency back to government, getting things, uh, getting things straight. I think secondly that there are deep-seated uh, issues, both economically and, and socially in this country. Um, when we look at things like healthcare, we look at social policy and so on. Again, when we look at, at economic mobility in this country, we see a stickiness at the bottom. We see a failure of the school systems. Uh, there are many people in this country uh, of all races uh, who cannot expect their local public school to actually provide them anything approaching a normal education. Uh, or the, and if they get through that, they, they find it very difficult or too expensive to get through college. So there are enormous obstacles of that kind that have to be uh, addressed. So I think there's a range of policies that way. And I say finally, I think you will see um, um, a surge of activity in the area of infrastructure. I think that uh, there is a feeling that this, the basic fabric of the country, literally the fabric of the country, the roads, the bridges, and so on, uh, are, are in disrepair. Uh, and I think that's something where we could see a White House and, and a Congress and both parties in the Congress perhaps uh, agreeing to move in those areas. Um, I think that will help to make a difference. Uh, but I think the, the, the division in this country uh, and, and the prospects for different segments of the, of, the, of the population are so different now that, as many people have said, we really have two nations. Uh, we've seen this in other countries, including my own, in the, in the early 19th, uh, 20th century. Uh, so we've got to think of it that way and, and begin to recognize those of us here in Washington who maybe are immune from a lot of the things that the typical Trump uh, voter sees uh, have got to really be realistic about what needs to, be, what needs to happen. 
David, could I add to that just for one second? I, I agree with everything that you said and that a lot of Americans look at our system and see something that's broken, but something beautiful happened today. We had a Democratic candidate who received more votes than her Republican counterpart, uh, but lost according to the rules of the election, stand up and concede that election. We then saw the President of the United States give a speech uh, welcoming the President-elect who beat his hand-picked successor and committed to doing everything he could to help the peaceful transfer of power and to help the transition of the old administration to the new. That doesn't happen in a lot of places. And so I think this is a unique moment to look at our system that is full of gridlock and polarization and is broken in a variety of ways and see this shining moment of it working exactly the way it has worked for 240 years and working as effectively as possible to make sure that that transition happens. Hmm. Elaine, what, what, how do you see the relationship between the Republican majority in the House and Senate and the new president? What are the questions we will have answered over yeah. the next few months? Well, that's a, that's a really interesting question because it goes to what I think happened in this election. Uh, I think the Republican Party simply came home. And we, in the press, in think tanks, we missed it because so much of the news was focused on Donald Trump's unorthodox personality. His tweets, his this, his that. The other day, I showed my students at the Kennedy School a, the policy points from Donald Trump's Gettysburg Address, which got completely overrun by news of how he was going to sue everybody, right? And that's all anybody focused on. And then, uh, what I, but when you took that away and you just took the policy points, they were very mainstream Republican Party policy points that have had a lot of appeal to people over the years. So I think when I was looking at the exit polls this morning, what struck me was this looked like quite a normal Republican coalition. Republicans voted for Donald Trump, even though many of the Republican strategists, certainly many of the Republican elites, were basically kind of appalled at him. So now that we move into this next stage, the interesting question will be, can they get along, right? I mean, there's no love lost between Paul Ryan and Donald Trump. Behind the personality questions, there are some deep philosophical questions. Donald Trump is a big supporter of the status quo in Social Security, and Paul Ryan is not. So th these are things that I think are going to continue to create problems. The Trump coalition is Republican, but with some very significant differences between it and the Republicanism in the Congress. John, how do you see this playing out, the institutional relationship between the Congress, uh, which is very jealous of its prerogatives, and a new president who has very little experience in this world? Well, one of the mistakes that new regimes have is this idea that under unified government, everything gets fast-tracked, everything gets streamlined. And they have to realize that they're not going to agree on everything. Yeah, they're going to agree on the repeal of ACA and tax reform and a few other things, but the Congress is going to be an institutional roadblock for a businessman who doesn't encounter roadblocks. So this is going to be a cultural change for Donald Trump and his administration as much as it is going to be a governing change. There is going to be a lot, like I said, that Republicans agree on, and there's going to be dramatic public policy change in this country starting on July 20th, uh, January 20th. Uh, forget by the time July comes. <laughs> <laughs> but what, uh, what is going to happen is this dance that happens. We saw this at the beginning of the Obama administration with giant majorities of Democratic control of both houses, but a president who at times was unable to get through parts of his agenda. The Congress will be much more divided now than it was in 2009. And for Trump, uh, for, for the new president, we are going to experience this period of time where everyone gets to know each other. You know, our last president went through a period of time where he got to know his own Senate colleagues. This is someone who is completely outside the system. The, the Congress needs to get to know um, the new president. The new president needs to get to know Congress. And they all have to get on some sort of a same page to understand what is achievable and what needs to be left behind. So Bruce, uh, what is Vladimir Putin thinking <laughs> right now? I think Vladimir Putin had a great night. Uh, <laughs> interesting to know what sales of vodka were like in uh, <laughs> Moscow. Um, 
Vladimir Putin did everything he could to signal that he wanted Donald Trump to win, and he engaged in a cyber war against the United States Democratic Party. It's really extraordinary when you think about it. A foreign power interfered in our political process. Now, I don't want to credit that with the outcome in any way. I don't think it really made that much of a big difference to the outcome. But they did interfere in our political process. It's difficult to judge Donald Trump's foreign policy because most campaigns have a bunch of foreign policy experts and they write all kinds of position papers and the person has been forced to defend themselves in the debate. We didn't have that this time. For example, the war in Afghanistan, America's longest war in its history, didn't come up once in the three debates. We don't know what his posture is on Afghanistan. What I think we can say, though, is this. He has, in the course of the campaign, challenged some of the very cornerstones of American foreign policy as we have known it for the last 70 years. One example, NATO. He hasn't said he wants to leave NATO, um, and there will be powerful bureaucratic forces that he's going to deal with, people who he has never met before either, uh, that are going to press to stay inside NATO. But he's diminished it. Uh, he said he doubts its value to the United States. It's all music to Mr. Putin's ears. And if you're living in Estonia today, you should be scared about what your future is going to be like, let alone if you're in the Ukraine or in Crimea. I think we're going to see uh, a foreign policy that is, could be remarkably different than what we've seen before and remarkably different from what Republicans have spoken about before. One of the most interesting things in the vice presidential debate was that Vice President-elect Pence said he would support a no-fly zone over Syria. Within hours, the president, his, his running mate, said, nope, we're not going to do that. I'm not on board there. The kind of traditional bipartisan foreign policy we've seen could be a casualty of what happened uh, yesterday. But, Bruce, um just to remind you of my anxiety about saying anything with certainty, chances are Donald Trump didn't actually, wasn't confronted with sitting down with whoever he picks on the National Security Council, meeting the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and actually having to weigh these decisions that he was so quick to tweet about, right? So is there any, let me just, is it a possibility, is there a possibility that face was the reality, you know, when they brief him on, this is the button you push to, yeah. that, that, um, uh, that we get something less than he talked about, something less uh, dramatic. Certainly. I mean, every president I've ever covered was about to go to war with China over trade, and right. as soon as they get into office, they discover that, well, maybe that's not such a good idea. Right. <clears throat> as I said, because he never really laid out right. clear, well-defined policies, we got, we got his sound bites, and we're trying, all of us are trying to extrapolate from sound bite, is there a policy behind it? Uh, I suspect that he's trying to figure out right. what the policy is behind it. Yes, he can walk back some of these things. I don't think he's going to tear up the nuclear agreement with Iran on the first day in office. In fact, he can't actually do that since it's an agreement that has uh, support of the international community and is underpinned by United Nations Security Council resolution. All that said, I've served through three transitions going from a Republican to a Democrat, Democrat to a Republican, and a Republican back to a Democrat. Um, there's a lot of you know, finding yourself around, but there's also an awful lot of, we're in charge now, and we're going to do it. Hmm. We promised we were going to do it in the campaign, and we're going to deliver on those campaign promises. That, I think, uh, Bruce, and your point, gets to the crux of the anxiety in the country, which is, who is this guy? is the how much of this is an act, how much of this is a way to signal to his followers that he's, that he's tough and he's principled, et cetera, and how much of this is real. And I think the fear that a lot of people have about President Trump is that he will not sit down with his national security advisor and the generals and walk through a sort of reasoned approach to NATO or, or any other policy question for that matter. That in fact, he will be constantly doing things 
that the rest of his government is trying to catch up with or correct, et cetera. We saw that a lot in the campaign, okay? Kellyanne Conway was practically lived at CNN saying almost every day, well, no, he didn't mean that, okay? So the question here is really goes to, and this is unique in presidential um, politics, it goes to the character of the man. Who is he? And is he the caricature that he stepped into during the campaign, or is there a serious person somehow behind that? Let me ask you one question, Elaine, about the Democrats. So you've said Republicans came home. My understanding, John, you had a number that uh, the turnout was five million less, you said? Yeah, about five, 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 five million and a half less million. people voted, five million fewer people voted in 2016 than voted in 2012, right? Mm -hmm. Despite this vaunted uh, Clinton. Uh, turnout effort. Why, if Republicans came home, why did Repub why did Democrats or so many of them stay home? I th I think that I mean it's it's a little bit hard to say. We do know that Hillary Clinton underperformed in all the key demographic groups from what Barack Obama had done. Um, there's two possibilities, right? Possibility number one is that Bernie Sanders took her down that in a change election, Bernie Sanders had somewhat the same kind of argument that Donald Trump had. She's more of the same, she's not change, she's, you know, she's part of the corrupt establishment, et cetera. And that that may have affected some of the people seeking change in the Latino community, the African-American community, and among young people, where she also fell short of Obama's numbers. So that's, that's one possibility. I think the second possibility, which we saw in some polls, they didn't quite ask it in the, they, well, they asked it a little bit in the exit polls, was I, I remember that she, Trump voters, when they asked, why are you voting for the candidate you're voting for, a big, big chunk of them said they disliked the other candidate. So I think that the irony here is that while Trump was kind of a you know, clown from time to time in the campaign and everybody thought, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, people took a serious dislike to Hillary Clinton and the Republican Party and the Trump campaign pushed that and, and, and moved it and did a lot to augment what, what was there. And so I think that is responsible both for her underperformance among Democratic groups and for Trump's overperformance and being able to basically bring back Republican voters into the fold. Stuart, um, we are an increasingly non-white nation. Uh, everybody has their favorite factoids about the number of uh, kids born in America and to people who are not white is greater than the number growing to uh, white mothers, and Bill Fry, our colleague here, has all sorts of charts and graphs. But when I think about the, the challenge that Donald Trump faces, uh, it seems to me this is a substantial one, that uh, he, he is seen as having been elected largely on the votes of white people, primarily white or heavily white men, and he is seen, uh, he is seen as a threat by many people of color. How, 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 where, where do we go from here, in a, given the diversity of America and the large number of people who feel kind of insulted by sure. it? Well, I think you're absolutely correct. I think that's an absolutely correct analysis of what's going on. Uh, and I think just to pick up on, on what uh, John said earlier, you know, there's an enormous challenge for the Republican Party generally uh, and for Trump within it. Um, Trump has to learn that, uh, uh, that the congressional sausage-making machine is slow and not always in a direct line. He's got to understand that. That's an understatement. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, which is very different from uh, any businessman's experience, to be, uh, to be frank about it. Uh, uh, in, in addition, of course, the Republicans now own everything and will shortly own the, the Supreme Court, one presumes. And therefore, they've got to show success. So I think that you've got these two big challenges they face. Uh, one is this issue of you know, how can they show success. I think there are some strategies to do that, but they've got to perform. And then secondly, you're right, that if you look at the longer term in the patterns of, of America, uh, if the Republican Party is not able to build the kinds of bridges and to, and to talk in terms that appeal to this uh, non-white population uh, in this country, it will ultimately fail. 
And that's why I think there's going to be a, a big debate. There is a big debate within the Republican Party about the tradition of Jack Kemp, of Ronald Reagan in that regard, uh, uh, and others who thought, who took the view that markets and capitalism is good for everybody, and, and they should go out and, and, and proselytize to everybody and do things in that way. Uh, and that's where Ryan's in, in a very tricky position because that's his heritage. He literally worked for Jack Kemp. Uh, and so mm -hmm. there's going to be a struggle within uh, the, uh, the party, both within the Congress and outside, as to which vision of, of republicanism and conservatism is going to prevail. Is it going to be one that says, you know, individual empowerment and choice and markets and so on is good for everybody, and we will make sure that it's available to everybody, or will it sort of uh, shrink uh, into a much smaller kind of uh, vision of, of the future, which is ultimately bound to fail? John, do you think there's a chance here that, uh, as president, Trump has a few priorities, uh, and that he effectively delegates the rest to the Republican leadership in Congress? I have in mind, for instance, he clearly feels very strongly about trade. And uh, as I understand it, the president has extraordinary amount of power on trade. Uh, and uh, that's even, even just the words can make a difference. But to, there's ways to invoke tariffs or to threaten other countries. So you can imagine him. And he doesn't need much help from Congress there. It's not like cutting taxes or, or spending more money on infrastructure. On the other hand, is it plausible that uh, the Senate Finance Committee and the House Ways and Means Committee get together and do some business tax reform thing? And Donald Trump looks at it and says, well, you know, as long as you're raising the tax on carried interest or something, I, I can live with it. And we end up with much more of a congressional governance on that stuff while he limits himself to the three things he cares about. I, I think it's likely that he's going to find a few priorities, a few pet projects, uh, and, and run with it. I, I think if we look at his career, it's going to give us a little bit of an insight into how he'll govern. Uh, this is a man who has a lot of properties, and at certain times during his career, he will focus on one or two of them as his pet projects. I think that's how he'll govern with policy. Delegating the rest, uh, perhaps to Congress, but it's important to remember, um, the president-elect sees Congress as part of the corrupt system, and even Republicans in Congress as part of that corrupt system. And so the delegation to the Congress, I think, will be limited. I think the delegation to the cabinet and to other agencies within the cabinet will be much more significant. And we'll see someone as president who is constantly looking for some sort of metric of success, of winning, if you will. <laughs> and uh, you know, one of the most remarkable things about President Obama's first term was cabinet stability. He actually had the most stable cabinet um, since Franklin Pierce in his first term. We are not going to see that in this administration. I, and maybe that's a good thing. Donald Trump is no Franklin Pierce, is that what you're saying? <laughs> He's no Franklin Pierce. Um, but we're, we're, uh, we're going to see something different. We're going to see cabinet secretaries, agency heads, and others really held accountable for failures, for failing to live up to the expectations that the president-elect sets. And I wouldn't be surprised if there was a lot of your fireds along the way trying to achieve what he wants to achieve, even if it's not something he's chasing after as a specific policy. Hmm. If he doesn't think it's a win, then it's a loss, and that person's gone. And so you might see a lot of appointee turnover early on in the administration and perhaps sustained through the administration because of that delegation. Hmm. You the, always the most popular game inside the Beltway the day after is trying to figure out who's going to get what right. job. Uh, we're so stunned by the results, we haven't really engaged in that yet. But we will within a, few, within a few hours. And I think this gets to an important question that you raised about uh, minorities, about um, women, uh, about Muslims. Who does he put in his cabinet? Is his cabinet a carbon copy of himself, a white man? Or does he now begin to reach out and try to get women into his cabinet, to get African-Americans, Hispanics? Does he try to reach out and find a Muslim for a, maybe not a cabinet-level job, but an undersecretary-level job? If he doesn't do that, if by January 20th we have a cabinet which looks an awful lot like Newt Gingrich times 12, 
the anxiety level in this country is going to peak because we're going to start. <laughs> I don't saying, think there's Look. twelve nuke yeah, no, for better or worse. <laughs> I think the anxiety level in this room just peaked. <laughs> <laughs> but Bruce, what about um, when we look back on this period in the wake of Brexit and this vote uh, that said this was some inflection point in, in globalization, thinking of defining globalization as the flow of people across borders in terms of immigration, the flow of capital across border, and of course the uh, lowering of barriers to trade and goods and services. Is this, I mean, we, that was an issue. He took a side. He took a clear side. And, it's very clear. and Hillary had to move in that direction because of Bernie Sanders. Right. I mean, there's not many people standing up for what used to be considered uh, conventional liberal, uh, in the British sense, economic order. The kind of cornerstones of American national security, American foreign uh, trade policy, yeah. he's, he's rubbish them. Um, so just if you had to guess, and, so I, and I use the word guess advisedly, five years from now, will we look back and say, wow, this was one of those inflection points in history? Or is there enough momentum so that it'll, it'll, you know, the bicycle will wobble, but we'll keep going? But now you really, I mean, five years... Nobody will remember in five years what you said. So. <laughs> That's why I'm not going to ask you who his Treasury Secretary is, because people will remember that. Uh, I think we will see it as, as a fundamental breaking point. I think this uh, uh, really is a big deal, um, because he has repudiated so many of the bipartisan cornerstones of national policy over the last 70 years. Now... Will he walk some of those back? Will he make adjustments? Is he really going to start building a wall on the 21st of January? Um, he may, but he's made a lot of commitments, and he's going to have to show his core constituency he's delivering on those. I would bet on a wall. If you're a construction company in Arizona, good news. <laughs> well, uh, Rob Portman, the reelected Republican senator from Ohio, said today it might be a virtual wall. A virtual. <laughs> <laughs> so, John, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to completely divert the conversation to marijuana, but it seems a shame not to talk about <laughs> it. Uh, as a result of referenda, you'll know the states, California, and a couple others. Uh, marijuana is now legal as a recreational drug. Correct me in in places where twenty percent of Americans live, as long as it's not in the United States. Yeah, there like were that. there were five recreational and four medical marijuana ballot initiatives uh, voted on yesterday. The five uh, recreational initiatives in California, Arizona, Nevada, Massachusetts, and Maine, the medical initiatives in Montana, North Dakota, Arkansas, and Florida. Um, everything but Arizona passed. Um, this, is, this was a remarkable moment for the marijuana reform advocacy community, uh, getting uh, quite a few wins. And the number of states that have uh, come online, as you said, puts a significant number of Americans in uh, legal marijuana states. It's changing public policy. Uh, in significant ways in those states. It is going to be an issue that uh, President Trump, his attorney general, um, and others within the administration are going to be facing in a serious way as California comes online, um, as Nevada comes online. I mean, whether others. to enforce federal law, and if so, how, in mm -hmm. states that have made it legal. Exactly. There's a lot of issues in this country. Marijuana is just one of them, uh, in which, uh, on the campaign trail, Trump's view wasn't all that far away from Barack Obama's, and this was one of them. Clinton and, and uh, Trump were pretty close on uh, marijuana policy, not identical, but pretty close. But the question facing marijuana activists right now and marijuana business owners and patients and customers um, and these new states is, will the new president, will President Trump carry on the Obama doctrine on marijuana? Um, will this be something that he delegates perhaps to an attorney general, Giuliani? Um, who is uh, very forceful um, in terms of the crackdown on, on drug use and marijuana in particular, if you look at his record as governor of mayor of New just York. Just so know, what, define the Obama doctrine on marijuana. It's uh, not something I'm pretty It's a hands-off approach uh, to the enforcement yeah. of the Controlled Substances Act that says if a state reforms its laws for recreational or medical marijuana use, it sets up a regulatory system and the players within that system don't engage in certain bad acts like sales to children or engaging with drug, car drug cartels, um, then the federal government will take a hands-off approach. They will use enforcement discretion not to go after those businesses and to divert uh, criminal, uh, sorry, uh, law enforcement resources to other states and other actors and other drugs, frankly, like, like opioids and fentanyl and others. Um, and that has been a 
workable solution right now under Obama. It's probably the most uh, face-saving solution for the new administration with the prospect of shutting down this many marijuana operators nationwide. Uh, but there are a lot of people, a lot of Trump supporters and surrogates who are vehemently opposed to this. And so we talked about uh, you know, key moments, and clearly key moments in terms of foreign policy um, and what it means for the future of America far outweigh what this key moment is. But there are a lot of nervous people in this industry and looking to get into this industry who woke up this morning with a result they didn't expect, and they saw a lot of states come online as legal marijuana um, states, which thrilled them, and then they saw the outcome of the presidential election, which gave them a little bit of pause. If I could just comment on that, because... Uh... I, first of all, it's a bit surprising we're getting into this issue and thinking about it as an industry that we ought to be sort of somehow Well, because it was but, John's expertise, yes, I thought uh, we owed it to him to but, but let me allow just, him to plug uh, his let book. Let me just uh, raise a point here, which harkens back to the first question you asked me about what is going on right. in this, in this uh, low-income, white, not only white, but white community. And we see this uh, as, as, uh, as pessimism about the future, as people being delinked from the from the workforce, just not working at all, not even trying uh, to work, uh, looking for alternatives for recreation and so on. The idea that we should be encouraging an industry that makes marijuana more available uh, to such people and to younger people who are trying to get through high school, and we know a lot about the medical effects of, uh, of marijuana on concentration, particularly in, in teenage and so on. I think it would be a disaster if we saw this uh, spreading any further. This is not a... a a uh, sort of middle class or upper income uh, cosmopolitan issue. This is an issue about what are the steps needed to enable uh, people for whom America is failing that they're not being able to move up the economic ladder. What do we do to help them move up? This is definitely, this would be definitely a step in the, in the wrong direction. Yeah, I just, let me make something clear to our audience. Um, Brookings governance studies, we study marijuana not because we have an opinion as to whether or not it's good or bad. And I share many of your concerns with about children, especially um, adolescent brains and marijuana. I think the research is pretty strong on that. But it is a massive experiment in federalism. And we can learn an enormous amount about an evolving 21st century federalist structure from the fact that we have states taking action on these issues with the federal government opposed. And so we, we saw a little bit of this, we saw the beginning of this kind of 21st century federalism when we, with gay marriage. And we started to study it then. Marijuana is proving maybe the biggest test and maybe the biggest evolution of the federalist system that we've had in a long time. So we are looking at it because of the governmental aspects, which apply not just to marijuana policy, but can apply to all sorts of other policies where states decide to try and get ahead of or stop something that the federal government is doing. And this goes to, you know, this goes all the way back to Marbury v. Madison and, and the roots of our, you know, the roots of our republic. I wish we were looking at another area to experiment in. Example, <laughs> well, that, that, but that's example, the one improve, here. Improve the availability of health care and other resources to people by using the federalist system. That would be much more well, interesting. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me take you up on that one. I don't want to divert. But, Sue, so you have written repeatedly uh, that the way out of the uh, gridlock over the Affordable Care Act is to not repeal it per se, but to widen the flexibility of states to achieve the goals of the Affordable Care Act in different ways. So um, how, uh, repeal of the Affordable Care Act did not seem a very likely prospect if we had a Democratic Senate and Hillary Clinton as president. Uh, and I suspect it's still a, an obstacle, the, the, the filibuster issue in the Senate. But still, the odds of it happening, or at least passing a bill that's called the Repeal Affordable Care Act, which may repeal none of it, but it'll have that title. Right. Those are all possibilities. So yes. uh, sketch out for Very me a, a possibility here where we hold on to the parts of the Affordable Care Act that are pop popular, but allow states to experiment more which is kind of a compromise from the repeal and we'll replace it, but I don't know with what. Yeah, well, I, I think it's, a, it's an excellent experiment in federalism. <laughs> <laughs> One can contemplate here. 
Uh, I think you're absolutely right. First of all, that even though there will be a bill, a bill which I'm sure has the word repeal in it, uh, going through in this area. First, of I think all, it'll be like we could probably it'll have the words. It'll, you could come up with the title: it'll be R for something, E for something, and it'll be called right, a repeal yeah. act. Oh, very, very likely. Uh, that's a very good. You have a contest. Let me write that one down. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think that's very likely. But first of all, I think that um, the idea that you would just uh, overnight, or at least through a bill remove the availability of health care, either through the Medicaid program or others, to millions of people, most of whom are but, the very people who are feeling that are being pessimistic about the future, the white uh, working uh, class population and so on. I don't think it's very likely. And if you look very carefully, that is not actually what um, now President or President-elect uh, uh, Trump has been discussing. He's been talking about the idea of moving certainly the Medicaid program and other resources to the states, uh, and also of looking at individualizing in some way uh, the resources available through exchange plans and so on. There's a pattern here to say, not that we undo the notion of giving people support to get uh, adequate coverage, but allowing a diverse way of doing it, an experiment in how best to do it. There are states uh, on the liberal side as well as conservative side who would embrace that without any question, who want to see a more um, towards a single-payer system, for example. So yes, I think you could see, and, and I think you will see, uh, a movement very much in that direction. And there are multiple ways of doing it. Even within the existing Affordable Care Act, there are provisions that would allow states to come forward and say, we want to get rid of the mandates. We want to get rid of the exchanges. We want to reach the objectives of the Affordable Care Act in a very different way. That's in the law. Uh, it hasn't happened because the Obama administration was unenthusiastic about that part of the law. But a Trump administration can absolutely do that. So even without legislation going through, you could see enormous changes. You could see enormous changes through the considerable discretion that the White House has in dealing with the states in the major programs and in the affordable care. So I, I could see that uh, you could see a, a dramatic change um, in, in the nature of the law without, without a change in the law. Certainly if, there was a, if a repeal bill goes through, I don't think it's going to get rid of things like allowing um, uh, parents to have their children on their, their coverage till 26 and so forth, um, um, you know, uh, pre-existing conditions and so on. Many of those things uh, have had bipartisan support for many years. Uh, so I think it's going to be a, a complicated uh, response to this. It's a great slogan to say, repeal Obamacare. And there are many things that should be repealed. But I think in practice, you're going to see an evolution of this towards a much more state-driven system with a lot of diversity, but a commonality of what it's trying to do, which is. So Elaine will have something to study besides marijuana. I think so. I, in fact, I would advise you to. I think, I think the idea that this is going to be a careful, deliberative process is, is a bit outside the realm of political reality. Um, there are a lot of members of Congress who have gone to Washington promising to repeal this law. You bet. And they have had an out for six years by saying the Democratic Senate wouldn't let us do it. We finally were able to repeal it, but the president wouldn't go along with it. There is no excuse now for the Affordable Care Act Fine. to stand. I'm sure they will pass a bill that repeals the Affordable Care Act. The question is, what parts of the Affordable Care Act will remain? Oh, no, I And get they'll that. say we repealed it. And, and what so I think all think, Stewart's saying is, yeah. how do they, they still have to write a bill. And you pass a bill that says, we repeal everything in the Affordable Care Act, millions of people lose health insurance coverage. Well, sure. I don't know that that's what they have in mind. But I think the, the heart of this law is going to go away because there's the risk of a primary if it's a weak or um, empty repeal. And that's what a lot of Republicans are scared to death of. If you sort of, you know, rearrange the deck chairs of Obamacare and then, you know, empower states, there's going to be a lot of conservative Republicans I think, I think Republicans that's a, mar that's ready a marketing to jump question. In. Let, me, let me posit something else. Uh, there was, even before the election, about, there seemed to be very little appetite for doing anything about the long-term projections that the debt would rise. The debt is high now relative to GDP. It's about 75% of GDP. It's never been higher except for a few years after World War II. Uh, there seemed little political urgency to deal with it. And indeed, with interest rates low, there seemed to be little activity from the markets. I, mean, I saw the bond market wasn't happy today, but there, I don't think it had anything to do with the fact that they woke up and discovered that we don't have the funding to pay for Social Security and Medicare promises that we've made. 
Um, it seems to me, I'm just going to assert this, and I'm interested in anybody has a reaction, that uh, the coming year will be a year in which we do not do anything much about the long-term debt. And in fact, on balance, we're more likely to have expansionary fiscal policy, uh, some combination of tax cuts and increased spending on defense and infrastructure. And that, uh, I, and I, I, I mean, I saw a Goldman Sachs analysis today, which uh, gave them a, a lot of uh, credit for their courage to actually put numbers on this to the second decimal point. They had 0.75% of GDP fiscal expansion in 2017. They apparently didn't get my memo about don't predict <laughs> things with a lot of certainty <laughs> six hours after the polls close. Right. Um, but is, is anybody challenging? Is there, is it just doesn't seem like, A, nothing's going to happen on the long-term debt, and B, if anything, we're going to uh, increase the deficit from what it would otherwise be? Oh, I, I, think you're, I think you're absolutely right. I can't remember a time when there was this little interest in deficits. Okay, it had a little boom around Greece when a lot of people, when the Greece crisis first went into American consciousness, when a lot of people thought, oh my God, oh my God, we're going to become Greece. And to, much to my amazement, um, this issue disappeared. We do not see it in the polling. We have, um, some of you may know, we have a very big primaries project going on here at Brookings where we examine everybody who runs in congressional primaries, which is a way to see what the inter-party demands are. And you see debt reduction there among the Republicans only, and it's about a fifth priority. So I, I, think, your, I think your prediction is right. I think we will see expansionary um, policy, and I think that nobody really cares about the debt right now. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I don't think it's a great idea that that's right, but it is right. Uh, and uh, I think until people see a, an effect of larger deficits, particularly in larger debt, which is inflation or right. high interest rates, unless yeah. they see that and associate it with it, then there's not a call for not action. Get it. It's a freebie. Yeah. Why not cut taxes <laughs> and spend more if there's no consequence? That's right. I mean, it's a pretty rational position if there's no consequence to it. That's right. uh, and that's, I think, where we are now, which you're absolutely right. There's no enthusiasm at all to deal with. And if you're going to deal with the, the long-term issue, if you look at the long-term progression, it's the entitlement programs. It's Social Security and especially Medicare. Mm -hmm. And nobody, including Mr. Trump. Except uh, Paul Ryan. Uh, Paul Ryan. Mm -hmm. Paul Ryan, yes. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Paul Ryan. Uh, but nobody else uh, is in any way enthusiastic about taking on those issues. Uh, I'm going to turn to questions in a minute. I just want to repeat that if you're not in the room and you want to try and pose a question, hashtag after the vote on Twitter, and one of my colleagues will keep an eye on it. Um, Bruce, uh, can you just look across the globe and tell us where you think uh, the, the, a Trump presidency is most likely to face the biggest challenges and where, where the, you mentioned that our, our whole framework for foreign policy is, is being questioned. Where is it China? Is it the Middle East? Uh, we talked about Russia sure. already. Sure. Well, I think there's an immediate question. Does he build a wall? And does he try to somehow, I don't know how, get Mexico to pay for it? We could have a crisis with our Mexican neighbor starting in January, starting even before January. Right. Um, the, as we noticed before, the Brookings Board of Trustees is bizarrely meeting in Mexico City uh, this week, uh, which either shows incredible presence of mind or uh, a lack of attention to scheduling. Um, if we have a crisis... We'll put that to a vote of the audience later, a <laughs> secret ballot. We, we could have, and I, and I say with Mexico, it could be more than with Mexico, it could be with Latin America as a right. whole. Um, I think... Beyond that, the Middle East, which has tortured every American president now going back decades, <laughs> is likely to torture Donald Trump just as well. He, he says he has a, a policy for dealing with the so-called Islamic State. Um, I think, in fact, we'll see a lot of continuity there because the policy that is dealing with the Islamic State is actually doing better than expected in many ways these days. But how is he going to deal with the Iranian nuclear deal? What is what is his response going to be? Is he going to increase sanctions on the Iranians, which could bait the Iranians into leaving the deal? Does he have a, a, a posture towards uh, the JASTA, the Justice uh, Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, uh, which was the only bill 
uh, passed by the Congress. This is the one that gives the 9-11 families the power right. to sue Saudi Arabia. Sue Saudi Arabia. Uh, is he going to do nothing about that, or is he going to try and, and repeal it? If he doesn't do anything about it, we're and he are going to be confronted early next winter, uh, early this winter, with a whole series of suits against one of our most powerful, most influential allies in the Muslim world. Given that there is intense concern in the Muslim world about what uh, Donald Trump stands for, about his, his announcement that he was going to ban Muslims from coming into the United States, about the way he, he dealt with the uh, Humayun Khan family. Um, it's an awfully rocky way to start off your relationship with the world's fastest growing religion uh, by suing the custodian of the two holy mosques. Um, <laughs> I think China, it's more difficult to say. He, he wants to make deals. He says he wants to make deals. Uh, is he actually going to live up to some of the things he said about tariffs and stuff like that? As you rightly noted, he has an awful lot of discretionary power on those kind of issues. Um, we'll see. And Bruce, finally, uh, so what happens with the Supreme Court? Presumably, he will nominate somebody, perhaps one of the people on his list. Um, you'd think that the Republican Congress would be inclined, the Senate would incline to support that person. You don't know what the Democrats would do. Um, what, how do you think, what are the, what are you looking for there, even though we can't predict? I mean, if, he, if he nominates a uh, person from the list that he's put forward so far, I think that person will, will Do you agree with that, John? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I think one person who would get fast-tracked through the Senate would be as if he picked Ted Cruz. Um, because the Senate's Just willing to get, to rid, get of rid of him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you might actually see a unanimous confirmation in that case. Um, and he's honestly a young, uh, conser true conservative uh, and someone who strategically, I think any presidential candidate would like to get off the stage and onto the court. There's a lot of appeal and, and, for and, and with a respectable um, constitutional background. Absolutely. I mean, he really, he, I mean, he's con very conservative, but Ted Cruz is no dummy when it comes to constitutional law. This event included an audience Q&A session. You can watch and listen to the full event on our website, brookings.edu, where you can also follow all of Brookings' research and analysis about the presidential transition. If you have a question for an expert, you can send it to our email address, bcp at brookings.edu, and I'll find an expert to answer it. If you attach an audio file, I'll play it on the air. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro, with assistance from Mark Holscher. Vanessa Sauter is the producer. Bill Finan does the book interviews, and design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahan, and Rebecca Weiser. And thanks to David Nassar and Richard Fawal for their support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. Until next time, I'm Fred Dukes.